It is Thursday, September 7th, and this is Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman Arendt. We love our pets. I know I do, and that love is a wonderful thing. But it makes questions about how we care for our pets that much more difficult. Today, just warning everyone, we're going to have some of those difficult conversations about pet care. What should we spend on medicine? How do we navigate the end of life? We've got a pair of experts standing by, and we want to hear from you because I think this particular conversation will really benefit from calls and emails. So call us. Get in line right now, 888-477-9499. Our email address is studio2 at whyy.org. Looking forward to hearing from you on that one. But before we get there, we'll hear about a 12-foot puppet that's about to set foot in Philadelphia. Little Amal is more than just an artistic novelty. She comes with a message for all of us about the lives of migrant children. But before we get there... We're going to dig in. Let's talk the about the news. You you first. Jerry. Yeah. Our top story has become a national story that if you were watching some of the national cable networks, it was looping over and over, over and over again. Over and over and over. Yeah. The fugitive Daniello Calvacante has continued to evade authorities after escaping a week ago from a Chester County prison. But the new details that came out were about how he managed to break out, including a video release by the prison that showed him crab walking up two walls. Now, if you see the video, he stretched himself out between two walls of a narrow hallway and walked with his hands and feet horizontally. He then scaled a roof and pushed through razor wire. Mm. Now, I should mention another prisoner used that same method in a previous escape attempt back in May, but was spotted by the watchtower and that razor wire had been installed after that attempt. But clearly it wasn't enough. Yep. And I mean, Avi, I, you and I, we looked at this video. We were like, oh, my goodness, yeah. this guy had to be really strong, had to be just the right height to be able to fit between those two walls. I, it, it was definitely a feat. And um, I should mention also in July, a murder suspect broke out of the Warren County Jail in northern Pennsylvania uh, using similar climbing techniques as crab walk. Yep. I mean, it's it's worth a look. I can't believe that he was able to escape this way. Yeah, of course, it's raising questions about the design. Exactly. Of prisons, mm-hmm. um, because as you mentioned now, several attempts of a similar stripe. So that suggests that prisoners um, have identified this as a weakness in the the design of some prisons and um, are trying to take advantage of it. And it's a little hard at this point to reflect on all those things because the top line takeaway is that Cavalcante remains at large. Yes, there is a perimeter. Yes, they have been able to reopen some businesses and schools in the area because they think it's safe. But I understand people living in Chester County are on edge, rightfully so, because this is now a week plus and they have not been able to apprehend him. And and what's other, there are other fail safes, right? Supposedly the cameras, no one yeah. caught him, no one saw him doing this. There's dozens of cameras that didn't spot him. And it wasn't until an hour later doing a routine head count that the guards realized that Cavalcante was missing. Yeah. And I should mention, he's a dangerous person. He had been sentenced to life in prison for murdering his girlfriend. So yeah. this is a serious thing, and, and he's still on the loose. Hopefully they'll catch him. Yeah. Shifting over to New Jersey now, uh, we've been talking about this for a while. The black bear hunt. 
uh, in New Jersey. There's been a huge back and forth about it for years, whether or not New Jersey should sanction black bear hunting in certain periods of the year. Governor Phil Murphy had at one point pledged to get rid of the black bear hunt, but that campaign promise has not been upheld because it sure looks like the uh, black bear hunt in New Jersey will be continuing for at least another five years because of a decision made yesterday by the New Jersey Fish and Game Council. They were barraged with comments before they made this decision Mm. to continue the black bear hunt. 8,000 public comments, most of them against the hunt. This is a huge issue, especially for a lot of animal rights groups. Um, But those uh, objections have not been heated in this case. It appears like there will be a black bear hunt moving forward. There is one more thing that needs to happen. Commissioner Sean LaTourette has to sign on to this plan, but it does appear that he will do that. Yeah, and I should mention that opponents of the hunt say that complaints about bear sightings are down and that the yep. number of bears in the states is now estimated to be around 1,600, and that number has been almost double in the past. So the, the hunt had been used to control the black bear population. That was one, it seems of, the like ideas, one yes. of the ideas, but it seems like that reason is now gone. But we'll see what happens, I guess. Yeah, um, and there's been this huge back and forth over over the years. It's just one of those things that I think has come to symbolize something larger about how animals and humans yeah. share space, right? Especially New Jersey is a very densely populated state compared to most. There are rural areas, mm-hmm. but compared to most states, it's very densely populated. And the the interactions between wildlife and humans, of course, then become can be pretty tight quartered. And that has been one of the arguments for the black bear hunt, but as the environmental act- activists uh, say, the population is way, way down. Yeah, so why are we doing this? Why and we're going to be it? talking about some of the ethics around pets, humans, animals, yeah. all of this uh, later in this hour. On a you know higher note, we're talking food. Yes. Did you know 60 new restaurants are coming to our region this fall? Mm-hmm. You know, going ahead to promote the Philly area as a food area food town and uh, food mecca that is true Uh, the inquirer did a wonderful roundup shout out to michael klein for that one of the new restaurants that i'm really looking forward to is going to be in old city it's called black hen it's a fried chicken shop from felicia wilson of amina also over in south philly another one i'm looking forward to is called bacon bacon it's a bacon-focused <laughs> restaurant and bar. Bacon-focused, guys. Bacon-focused. I, I just this got This one my, is right around the corner from my yeah, house. Yeah, I, I know. We both love bacon. Yeah. So, but I don't really know what that means, but I guess I'm curious to find it's out. It's like bake with a... No, I know, but what, is it, what does bacon-focused restaurant mean? I mean, it's bacon on everything. Ba- a, a, a restaurant and bar. So in your drink, I would imagine, too. You can have a bacon-infused bacon like, yeah, martini. I, I mean, so. why wouldn't that be I good? I am curious about that a little bit. Also, South Philly, your, your whole neighborhood is getting hooked up. They're going to have a Brooklyn dumpling shop. South Philly's been the best place to eat in the world I mean, for you can just time. eat your way through South Philly. Also, <laughs> I'm a big fan of Rosie's Taco Bar. They're getting a second location. It's going to be called Rosie's East at 624 South 6th Street. So those are just some of the... Rosie, you're a fan of Rosie's Taco? I love Rosie's I don't Taco. even know what this is. Yeah, it's um, it's in Center City. Okay. Yeah, but they're going to have one in, in South 6th Sounds Street. great. It's interesting, too, that there are still several restaurants that are reopening or relocating um, post-pandemic yeah. that were disrupted yeah, yeah, yeah. or closed through the pandemic. I'm really excited about Sate Campar, which used to be right in my neck of the woods. They are reopening with a whole new concept after closing down Malaysian food, delicious, delicious. and Royal Tavern 
also, which had closed during, which is in South Philly as well. I'm very South Philly focused when I look at these lists, but it it is interesting. And it's interesting that that's still that that cycle of rebirth from the pandemic is still playing out in the restaurant industry. Yeah, but go ahead, Philly. Speaking of rebirth. Reemergence. The Eagles are back this Sunday against the New England Patriots. That is their first game of the year. The first NFL game of the whole season is tonight. The Eagles are not involved. Eagles made it to the Super Bowl last year. Don't have to remind you of that. They came up just a bit short, Mm -hmm. and they are hoping to get just a bit further this year. And I know you're a sports guy. I am. And um, one of the things that... For better or worse. That, you know, a lot of people lose their, you know, on Sundays, their... Their hubbies, their partners, <laughs> oh, no, go women, into like <laughs> women, women like football I love too. football yeah. too. And and by the way, my guy is a 49ers fan, but he now has Eagles gear mm-hmm. because you know Billy be- Penn be- did a whole because you know what Billy Penn did a whole story about how couples, you know, if you, it's important that you both root for the Eagles. So yeah, according to the survey that they had <laughs> written about, twenty percent of Eagles fans say it's very important for the romantic partner to also root for the Eagles, to which I would say 20% of people are liars. There's absolutely no way that if you have a strong romantic attraction to someone and they happen to like another football team that you're just going to turn the other way you're not gonna or turn. demand that they become You're not going to turn There's the other way, but... If you have that, that real feeling of loving someone, you think people are going to... Just ignore that because they like another football team. I like football, but not like that. But I'm not saying that. But I'm That's just saying that. People. But you will lean in and say, hey, I'm going to get you a jersey. One in five people are full of you it is what, is what I would say. <laughs> well, and we're going to move on to our news maker. We'll leave. We'll put a pin in that. We're going to sure. talk about that some more, Avi. Okay? okay. We're going to talk about that some more. And we're going to talk to our newsmaker. A 12-foot puppet of a 10-year-old Syrian refugee child has traveled over 6,000 miles to 15 countries. And today she'll start her walk in the U.S. And by next week, little Amal will be here in Philadelphia. And we have Khadija Osini, Artistic Associate of the Touring Team, joining us right now here in Studio 2. Welcome to Studio 2, Khadija. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's exciting that we're going to be in Philly. We're excited to have you. Uh, Tell our listeners about the origin story of Little Amal. So Little Amal was birthed four years ago, but the first walk was in 2021. And on that journey, she started at the border of Syria and Turkey and traversed all the way to Manchester. And within that journey, she visited about 65 different localities, which equated to about eight or nine countries and interacted with so many different voices and people, points of power. She met the Pope. She met youth um, organizations and leaders. um, And she just was such a beacon and an icebreaker for a lot of um, stories and people that were virtually existing invisibly in their own cities. And from that first walk, it was inherent that this needed to continue and we needed to take her as far and wide as possible. And here we are going across the country this fall, which is very, very exciting. And so let's talk about Amal, the physical manifestation of her 12-foot puppet. Describe what she looks like and how she is operated. Oh, she's gorgeous. Um, The credit for just how beautiful of a mechanism she is uh, goes to Handspring Public Company, 
just based out of South Africa. I don't know if you are familiar with Warhorse, but they are also the brilliant minds behind that. And um, a mall is operated by three puppeteers. So there's one uh, puppeteer that's on stilts inside her frame. And we have two other puppeteers that operate her hands. And she just moves so fluidly. And because of how expressive she and emotive she is, I've literally seen adults moved to tears. Mm. Oftentimes we see puppets in a theater setting. This puppet moves through the world. Why was that important? How does it amplify the message that little Amal carries with her? It's important for Amal to go where life exists. And the the impetus to even create this project came from wanting to investigate the long journeys that many millions of people are forced to make um, because they've been displaced for very different reasons, whether it's violence, war, climate change, you name it. There are also other reasons that people become marginalized and pushed out of their homes of origin. And just to get as close and as proximate to what that could feel like so that this large empathetic muscle is exercised and theater is such a beautiful arena for um, flexing empathy and building up that muscle. We thought that it would just only make sense to put her directly in the streets. And with all the red tape that comes with getting permits and securing uh, the the right paths for her to walk through. That's also an exercise with people on the ground where they exist to realize what's possible and how can you become space makers in your own communities. Wow, and I think, and now Amal is headed to the U.S. this week. She'll be in Philadelphia next week. Um, talk about her path through the U.S. and and sort of what the what you're hoping to accomplish by bringing her here. Yeah, so we start today in Boston, uh, which is where I'm speaking to you from. And we are going to be going all the way to San Diego. We currently are visiting 37 cities. There are over 100 events. And there's no one event that's the same. And we love that because whenever we go into a city, we connect directly with our local, um, local artists and organizations that essentially highlight what's important to them and what matters and how they are grappling with different issues on the ground and what how Amal's presence can start new conversations where they are. So this journey is not only uncovering many different narratives that create the vision of what America is, but it's also investigating America's relationship with its southern border. And um, what does it mean for us as a country? And I say us because I'm I'm based in, in the US, but not the entire team. Uh, our team is from all over the world. Um, but what, what does it say about us as welcoming newcomers into yeah. this country and the promise of what um, the American dream really is? And what how we, act in our own backyard trickles internationally. Yeah. So Thank you so much, Khadija. We do have to leave it there. That is Khadija Oseni, Artistic Associate of the Touring Team for Little Amal. 
a puppet who will be in Philadelphia next this time week. next week. We're looking forward to it. And we're looking forward Thank to more you. Studio 2 right here on WHYY. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. Anyone who has had a dog, a cat, a guinea pig, a lizard, any kind of pet knows just how painful losing a beloved animal can be and how hard it is when they get sick or reach the end of their life. How much money should you spend on health care? How do you make decisions in your pet's best interests? They can't speak for themselves, so we often look to veterinarians for guidance. More Americans than ever before have pets in their lives, partly due to the pandemic, but many people were at home more often. We're also spending more money than ever on our animals with new innovations in veterinary health care. We brought in some experts to help us think through all of this. With us now is James Serple, an emeritus professor of ethics and animal welfare at the University of Pennsylvania. James, welcome to Studio Two. Hello, nice to be here. Joining us remotely is veterinarian Emily Tencher, who is also Senior Director of Pet Health for Nationwide. Emily, welcome to you as well. Thanks so much for having me. And we want to know about your pets, friends. What difficult decisions have you made or what decisions do you have before you? You can call us 888-477-9499. Nine four nine nine. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. I want to start this conversation, James, by maybe making us feel a little bit less alone and globalizing this a bit. Um, the pet-human relationship. It spans centuries, right? It, it's, it's pre-civilization, really. How long have we been living with pets? Well, it depends a bit who you talk to. So some experts... Um, say that uh, our earliest relationships with things like dogs were based on kind of scavenging and that sort of thing. I personally believe they started as pet keeping. Um, We have uh, evidence, for example, from um, Indians living in the Amazon basin that pet keeping is very common there. So when they, uh, say, for example, killed a mother animal and there's a baby with it, they'll bring the baby home to the village and they'll rear it as if it's a member of the community. So mm. it's very much occupies that same role uh, as a pet. And I envisage this type of relationship between people and animals going back millennia to the very, very dawn of domestication. And we know that the wolf, the ancestor of the dog, for example, was domesticated somewhere between fifteen and 30,000 years ago. So wow. we're talking a long, long time. Wow. Quick follow-up question to you, James. I mean, the difference between having a pet or a companion and having domesticated animals, there's a difference. Can you explain the difference? Because some people may have pets, but I mean, or animals, but they use them for work or food or something else. Yes, indeed. So what I, I think the pet-keeping relationship was the sort of transitional state. So some, a lot of animals were kept as pets back in the day, sort mm-hmm. of thousands of years ago when, we're, we're, when our ancestors were, you know, essentially hunting for a living. But over time, some of those animals 
became uh, specialized, as it were, for different functions. So some of them became livestock animals and became useful for food. Um, others uh, remained pretty much in the pet role, but were also used for things like, well, in the case of cats, for example, they were used to help us keep mice out of our granaries, you know, keep mice out of mm. the kitchen. And uh, with dogs, you know, they acquired multiple uses, sometimes for hunting, sometimes just for guarding our property, and sometimes just as a lapdog, something that sits yeah. on our lap and gives us companionship. So uh, it, it was a kind of, I see the sort of early pet keeping as that sort of transitional phase, which probably went on for hundreds, thousands of years before full domestication took place. But we had to go through that initial, <laughs> as it were, companionship space, yeah. role before we could then take it to the next level, if you like. I want to bring in um, Emily Tincher to this conversation. Uh, Emily, you've worked as a vet. How do you start to talk with people about how much they should spend on medical care for their pets and what type of medical care is best? Not talking about end of life necessarily, but just standard health care for a pet. How do you open up that conversation with people? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it can somewhat depend on whether we're talking about wellness care. So are you taking your pet in for vaccines or talking about flea or tick or heartworm prevention versus when something's wrong, when their pet is sick or as we may talk about in a bit about that end of life care or chronic diseases. And I think the most important thing that pet families can do to prepare for that conversation and be kind of the, a team with their veterinarian is to say, what are my goals? And and understand, you know, how where does my pet fit in my family? Do they sleep in the bed with me? Um, it might help your veterinarian understand your human-animal bonds level, but also, mm. you know, what are some of the things they might need to prepare you for? So vaccines even, what, what types of things does your pet do? Do they go to the groomer or dog parks so that they can best advise you on, you know, what are what are the things we might be most worried about that could affect your pet's health? And if you are just tuning in, we are speaking with James Serple, professor of ethics and animal welfare, emeritus at University of Pennsylvania, and second generation veterinarian, Emily Tencher. We want to hear from you. Do you have questions about decisions to be made about your pet? You can call 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. Um, Emily and James, I definitely want to, I want to ask you this. What is our obligation to our pet? Like we, people take in these animals. What obligations or duties do we have to them when we decide to become their owner? And Emily, I'll start with you. I love that question because it asks us who, who gets to have a pet and, and what responsibilities do we have for them? We do believe having a pet is a responsibility. We have to provide them with food and water and shelter and think about their basic health needs. But we don't have to get, I think, caught up on doing absolutely everything for them, understanding that each of us have different goals and values and resources, especially financial ones. How can we do the best for our pets, but also realize that the best thing for them is having a, a loving family that's trying their best, while that doesn't always mean pursuing the most advanced level of, of health care if that's not what's right for you and for them. 
Do you have anything to add to that, James? No, I think I agree with Emily there. I think it's important to think of pets as being dependents. So they're like kids, you know. If you take on a pet, you're taking on a responsibility, and that responsibility is to uh, care for that animal as best you can mm. and provide for its welfare, provide for its health and well-being. And as long as you, you know, are conscientious in that regard, then I think, you know, your, uh, your relationship with your pet is on a sort of, if you like, ethically firm mm. ground. Um, if you get the pet for the wrong reason and you're not prepared to put in the kind of uh, mileage that's needed to care for it properly, then that's a problem, I think. It's, it's, it's going to be primarily a problem for the animal, but it could also be a problem for you down the line because that's not going to develop a good relationship between you and your pet. Before we get into some of the comments, and we have several already, I just want to ask a follow-up question on that, James. At what point do we relinquish ownership of a pet. People fall on hard times. Sometimes people have to travel mm -hmm. constantly. There are all sorts of reasons. But if I'm thinking I might need to make that decision to give up a pet, what criteria should I use? Well, I think the primary consideration is if you think that you are failing to provide for your animal's needs, if you really, if your circumstances, your lifestyle, whatever it is, means that you can't provide the care that that animal needs to remain reasonably happy and healthy, then that's a time to consider finding a new home for that animal, whether that means, you know, asking a neighbor or a friend or a relative or your local shelter or whatever. Um, I think that's the key criterion. Just are you providing for the animal correctly? Are you have, do you have a good relationship with the animal? You yeah. know, sometimes the relationship can break down. It might not all be your fault. You may have acquired an animal that has what we sometimes call behavioral problems or behavioral issues uh, that are hard to deal with and you just can't cope with because of your current circumstances. Then that's the time to sort of reconsider this relationship. It's tough, though, to figure out what correctly means. And in part, I think, because we are, I don't want to say blinded, but, but influenced by our love or attachment to the pets. Like... How do you begin to have a conversation with someone about what correctly actually looks like in mm. the real world? Yeah, I agree. It's not that easy. Um, I think, you know, most pet owners, if they sit down and think about it, can recognize when the animal isn't doing well. Yeah. Um, and that's, a, that's an in, internal dialogue we have with ourselves about yeah. the state yeah. of the animal. And that's really critical here. Yeah. Or if the animal's causing so much stress within the household, that could be another criterion. It's not just the animal we have to think about. We have to think about our own mental well-being, the mental well-being of other people in the household, that type of thing. So it's, it's a yeah. balancing act to some degree. And I want to bring in a caller. Um, by the way, you can join the conversation by calling 888-477-9499 or emailing studio2 at whyy.org. Beth is on the phone and wants to talk about pets not being aware of their own treatment. Beth, you are on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Hi, thank you for taking the call. Yes, I was curious for a um, question for the ethicist. What role does the issue of the pet's inability to understand the treatment, the pain, and the suffering that they're going to go through 
if one elects to put them through such treatment um, when you may or may not know whether they're going to have a good outcome. Mm. Yeah. So the fact that, that pets are not aware of what you're doing to them, how does that factor, James, into your decision-making as a human? It's a very important consideration and a really good question. I think um, animals, for the most part, live for the now. So they're, they're concerned with what's happening to them at this moment in time. And if that involves a lot of pain or discomfort, that's that's not the animal's not going to like that. Um, at the same time, you could make an argument that you know some pain and discomfort now, if it leads to a very positive health outcome that will remove that pain and discomfort, then that's a positive, and maybe it's worth putting the animal through that short period of discomfort in order for the better payoff at the end of the day. The unfortunate side of this is when it gets towards sort of end-of-life care where um, the payoffs may be beneficial but usually only in the short term and that the long term is kind of downhill. We know it's going to be downhill because of the age of the animal or the particular condition it's suffering from. And that's when these decisions become really agonizing um, because we don't want to put the animal through a lot of suffering. And I want to bring Emily back into the conversation because, Emily, I know as a veterinarian, you have an obligation both to the family as well as to the animal as well. How do you help uh, people making decisions for their pet, the pet that can't speak for themselves when they're trying to make these types of decisions about end-of-life care and whether euthanization uh, should be an option? Yeah, so as a veterinarian and and the whole veterinary team, our big part of our role is to be an advocate for the pet and to help educate and have that conversation with their family to say, these are the possibilities, these are the options that we have for treatment, and these are what the potential outcomes, you know, and the chances of success and, and what that looks like depends on the condition. But if we think about something like cancer treatment, for example, I think part of what the caller was asking about is how do we take the pet's uh, perspective into account? Mm. And uh, one of the things that we think about and and really is better research in human medicine is the family quality of life. And one of the pieces that comes into that are pet-related factors. So really there's no one who understands your pet better than you. I, as a veterinarian, can talk to you about the medical condition that's going on, but you have to help me understand, is your dog someone who would really struggle coming in and visiting an an oncologist, say, for chemotherapy? That would be really stressful for some pets. And others trot in and have the absolute best times. They receive treats and attention. And so understanding and being an advocate, even from the pet family side, of these are the kinds of things that stress out my pet or... Um, the kinds of things that we we want to focus on for them because I know them so well. I want to ground all of this conversation in a real-world example. This is an email from listener Cindy. Cindy writes, My husband teaches bioethics, and yet we cannot come to a decision on how to care for our 18-year-old cat. His name is Mr. Duncan. He has kidney disease, thyroid disease, and has lost lots of weight. He hates the car and the vet. We do not want to put him in any distress at his age but he does not appear to be in pain and is eating and is using the litter box, but he does nothing but sit and stare at the water bowl. So 
the big question that Cindy asks, how do we assess a cat's quality of life when there are no obvious signs of physical pain? And I'll start with you, Emily. Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that Mr. Duncan has some pretty common conditions for older cats, yeah. hyperthyroid disease and kidney disease. That's a, it's difficult to manage chronic conditions and um, can be sometimes harder for the family to make decisions when it doesn't feel like there's a instant or a short term um, decline in that quality of life when it feels like it's really slow. So I just appreciate how difficult that is. I think, you know, things like appetite, energy level, what makes your, your putt healthy. One of the things I have really found practical for cases like that, uh, there's a free app called gray muzzle. Hmm. That is one way you can do this, or you can go old school with a calendar at home and track what a good days and bad days look like, because just having a little bit, you know, having it in front of you and saying, okay, we've actually had, you know, I'm going to make up a scenario for Mr. Duncan. We've, we've had 20 good days, two bad days and eight kind of in the middle days in the last month. And, you know, you and your veterinarian can work together to define what good days look like, but eating and drinking, using the litter box and and enjoying interacting with you are some of the things you might include and tracking that and then saying, gosh, I'm really seeing over time, we aren't seeing as many good days. We're seeing in, you know, in different days and, and more bad days that can help make decisions and help mm. you come back to your veterinary team and say, Hey, I'm seeing some changes. Is there something we should do to intervene and change the, the treatment for Mr. Duncan or cases like him? Um, or is it maybe time to think about saying goodbye? Very interesting. Um, James, I want to bring in another uh, comment here. This is from Mike. I've always wondered why more people don't have their pets put down at home. I know it costs more than going to the vet to have it done, but it is a small price to pay for having them in their comfortable environment when it's time for them to go over the rainbow bridge, especially cats. They almost universally hate being in crates and hauled to the vet. Mike mentioned there that the cost is higher, but what do you advise folks to do about the idea of um, euthanasia at home versus elsewhere? I'm actually a big advocate for it, especially with cats, mm -hmm. um, because so many cats are so uh, stressed by going mm -hmm. to the vet or getting into their crate or being taken in the car. Um, if your cat's comfortable with going to the vet, then there are, there are advantages to going to the vet to do it, but it, nowadays uh, an, increasingly number, an increasing number of vet, veterinarians are, are willing to make these types of home visits. There are even you know, companies that will organize that for you. And um, I think it's um, a, a great innovation in, in veterinary medicine that um, you can actually bring people to your home to make those last moments of your pet's life more endurable, higher quality, um, and I, I'm a strong advocate. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit about dollars and cents here because, I mean, deciding to euthanize your pet, tough decision, um, but when you're faced with um, what could be very expensive medical costs, how should you be looking at that when making that decision? Um, and Emily, I want you to also comment here because you, if you can't afford it, if do you go into debt? Like what, 
what should you be thinking about um, when you have to do that either or, like healthcare or death for your pet? Yeah, it's such a difficult um, equation to do that sort of calculation because so much depends on your relationship with the animal, how strong your attachment is for the animal, how much you are going to, uh, you're willing to sort of invest, as it were, in trying to do the best for that animal and keep that animal going for as long as possible. It, at the same time, it's it's difficult because, you know, if you're going to push yourself into debt, it's not only you who will suffer, it's potentially other members of your household, your family who mm. will suffer as a result of that. It may cause conflict within the family if not everyone de- agrees with your decision. So there are so many ramifications to it. It's very much, I feel like it's very much an individual decision that has to be made by the owner based on the best information they can get from their veterinarian about the likelihood of the the treatment being successful or uh, the treatment um, actually prolonging the animal's life significantly and that kind of thing. And I wanted to get Emily's comment on this and include this email from Chuck who says, in my experience, the major cost of care can come from the system of emergency vets for off hours and complicated issues. This industry is becoming big business and making costs harder to manage. Your reaction to that? And we only have about a minute and a half or so and left in the discussion. Yeah, I, I would I would say overall the, the cost of providing veterinary care is increasing for a number of reasons and and in short inflation is part of that it's just it's harder to just like every industry um be able to provide staffing and and especially for those 24-hour services when our pets need emergencies and that was primarily my experience in full-time clinical practices as an emergency veterinarian i think it's important to know that one in three families in the U.S. would go into debt for a surprise cost of greater than $500 for their pets. Mm. And that might be surprising to us. So one of the big things we can do is try and prepare financially. If you have a pet that's really important to you, whether that's a pet savings account, whether that's pet health insurance, there are lots of options, but having a little bit of preparation in hand for when the unexpected things do happen, because the stats are that they mostly will at some point in the lifetime of your pet can be helpful. And the other thing I would say is be be a, a vocal advocate for what your goals are and what your budget is when you're talking to your veterinarian. Very rarely are there only two options. I won't say never because there are some health conditions where that's the case, but very rarely can we not offer you multiple things to say, you know, there, there are trade-offs. If you're willing to spend more time and, and do more things at home, sometimes that can decrease the cost. So um, make sure that you talk about what you have, whether that's time or emotionally or financially, what you have in your kind of bank and, um, and have that conversation with your veterinarian. As with so many things, yes. it comes down to communication. Uh, that is Emily Tincher, veterinarian and senior director of pet health for Nationwide. We were also joined this hour by James Serple, professor of ethics and animal welfare emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. James, Emily, thanks to both of you. Thank you. Coming up. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And coming up, we're going to be dipping into Philadelphia history and literature because it is Trivia Thursday. Looking forward to that. Stick with us.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Let's wind down the week. This is Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And today, friends... It's Trivia Thursday. I love to say that. that Yeah, that wasn't your most enthusiastic one so far, but it was pretty good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Avi, for that. I'll have to step it up. I'll have to step it up. I'll do weekly reviews of how you say Trivia Thursday. (laughs) Joining us from Shillington, Pennsylvania, is our contestant, John. John, welcome to Studio Two. Pleasure to speak to you, Cherry. Avi has a question. Avi. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Yes. Thanks for throwing me in there. Uh, so Avi has a question ready to go. But for our listeners, if you want to be like John and become a Studio 2 trivia contestant, please call 215-351-0525. And I'll repeat it, 215-351-0525. And tell us why you'd be a great contestant. Please well, do. I like doing the trivia. I haven't done the trivia circuit since before the pandemic, but... I used to subsidize my uh, swimming uh, club membership with uh, with uh, some DJ trivia at the, the local Sheraton, and uh, and then then I've had some some uh, odds and ends quizzes and things that I've attended, including uh, probably the most interesting one was something called Kinky Quizzo, which was oh wow that's that's for Studio Two after dark. We got to say yeah, we gotta well, say okay, that one. It's family Kinky friendly, Quizzo. But, you know, <laughs> yes, yes, it, it was to promote a, uh, an adult novelty website. Interesting. Through, uh, bars and local So, TV. John, well, John, so John has this some week, interesting, uh, interesting background. Go ahead, Avi. This, <laughs> week, this week, the prize is very... The most interesting uh, of all the, the most, trivia it, in terms of just being, you know, way out in left field. Got it. Okay, so, so. The, the prize this week is very G-rated. It's a G-rated. It's, it's a Studio 2 grocery tote bag. I'm about yes. to ask you a question, <laughs> John. Grocery. John, are you ready? Yes. Okay. There is a stuffed raven at the Free Library of Philadelphia. This raven was the supposed inspiration for Edgar Allan Poe's famous poem, The Raven. And before that, when it was alive, this raven was the pet of what other famous writer? And I'm going to give you four choices. Was it A, Emily Dickinson, B, Herman Melville, C, Charles Dickens or D Walt Whitman I'm going to I'm going to have to say Walt Whitman and that's that's a that's kind of a weird one but um uh well let me think about that Emily Dickinson there's there's a New England connection uh, let me just go what are the choices again Dickinson Herman Melville Charles Dickens and Walt Whitman all right, I'm going to go with Walt Whitman. I I see where you're coming from there because mm. Walt Whitman is local, but it's Walt not Aww. Walt Whitman. I'm so sorry, John. All right, well, you know, it was a good try. What was the answer? The, so, good question. It's Charles Dickens. So, Grip the Raven oh. was a talking bird. It inspired a character by that name in a Dickens novel called Barnaby Rudge. Oh. Poe reviewed that novel for a British magazine, and, you know, long story short... Grip ended up in Philadelphia somehow and is in the rare book department of the Free Library Central branch. So this was Charles Dickens' Pet Raven. And since we're doing a pet theme show today, 
We um, had to bring it in. We had to bring it in. But it was a very good guess, and I saw your logic there, John. Well, I'll uh, I'll try again if the opportunity ever prevails. <laughs> and uh, I think we could have we, John. We back. appreciate you, John. I would, I would love to come back. Um, and if not, you'll see me for the BP Quizzo Friday. That's uh, right. I'll good be, plug. Uh, with John. how fast you can return emails. And I would say this about John. He plays a, a trivia thing we do on Friday and is one of the most successful contestants in history in that quizzo. So John really does know his stuff. And, and you're going to get it. Yeah, I have I a feeling one day you I'm will here. get the G-rated grocery trivia. <laughs> thank yeah, you so thank much, you John. Much. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Turning now to the weekend, WHYY's Tanya Pendleton has the roundup. Here she goes. A short week means we get to the weekend faster. And that's a good thing. If we start tonight, we can go straight into two events that combine food, fun, and festivities. The Navy Yard Night Market takes place at Central Green going from 4 to 8 p.m. They promise a variety of food trucks, games, and fun. Also tonight, in West Philadelphia, the Baltimore Avenue Dollar Stroll goes from 5 to 8 with retailers and restaurants providing special discounts and promotions. It's on the avenue between 40th and 51st Streets. Just ahead of Hispanic Heritage Month, two celebrations are taking place. Mexican Independence Day happens on Sunday at the Great Plaza on Penn's Landing. The family-friendly event celebrating Mexico's independence from Spain with music, food, and dance goes from 2 to 8 p.m. Viva Mexico! Viva! Viva America! Viva! Oh, suelo bendito de Dios! Viva Mexico! Viva! Viva and in North Philly, Feria del Barrio has been an annual event since 1979. It's also on Sunday from 1 to 5 p.m. outside Taller Puerto Ricano on North 5th Street. The Philadelphia Fringe Festival is now in its 26th year. For three weeks, art has allowed its full expression through a series of creative events at traditional and non-traditional venues throughout the city. The opening night event, Bowie in Berlin, Sound and Vision, is a recreation of Bowie's Berlin Trilogy with cabaret performers and students from Paul Green's Rock Academy. It's on Thursday and Friday at 7 p.m. at Fringe Arts. We'll have info on other events on our website, whyy.org slash things to do. Farmers grow, harvest, and pack nearly 400 million mushrooms a year in this small Pennsylvania town. This is Kennett Square, the mushroom capital of the world. Here, they cultivate everything from white button and portobello to specialty mushrooms like shiitake and lion's mane. Mushrooms? They're always on the menu in Kennett Square because it's the nation's top mushroom producer. This weekend, the town hosts the annual Mushroom Festival on Saturday and Sunday, starting at 10 a.m. on both days. There's a mushroom cooking contest and other activities, along with purveyors of every kind of mushroom and mushroom-related item that you can imagine. The Delaware River has its fair share of attractions, and pedal boating is one of them. You can enjoy that and more at the Delaware River Festival taking place at Penn's Landing and Wiggins Park in Camden on Saturday. It starts at 10 a.m. and goes until 4 p.m. with activities and events on both sides. Where did the idea for this project come from? Okay, I think maybe you should tell that story. I, I was going I was about to start okay, when right, interrupted cool. me, as right. usual. Okay. So about three I years just want to make sure that you said it correctly, though. 
Okay, you can. Who knew that Sting and Shaggy are the bromance we needed? The duo recorded two albums together, one of which is all Sinatra covers produced by Sting. They're hosting the One Fine Day Festival with performers including Thundercat, Coffee, G-Love, and more. It's at The Man on Saturday at 3 p.m. That's life. That's what all the people say. If you're hungry for some classic 80s music, Duran Duran's in town. They're at the Wells Fargo tonight with Nile Rodgers and Chic. The show starts at 7 p.m. We're winding down this week's edition of Things to Do, but not before we let you know that Gregory Porter is in town. The Grammy-winning, genre-defying artist is headed to the Dell on Saturday, and he's bringing friends with him, friends that can sing and play. Leela James and our own Jeff Bradshaw are on the bill. That's it for Things to Do this week, but if you want more details on what you've heard or when the Brandywine Arts Festival and the Doylestown Arts Festival get started this weekend, head to our website, whyy.org slash things to do. Whatever you choose to do, have a great weekend, everyone. There it is. Snapping to end the Studio 2 week. I got a shout out. First, my cat, CJ <laughs> Dillon. I Aww. love you, CJ. And I always thought you were a dog person. No, I'm a cat guy. Yeah. Through yeah. and through. Also got a shout out our producer, Debbie Builder, who came up with the trivia great question this week. It was job, a great question. Debbie. Also, thanks to our other producers who also did wonderful things. Paige Marie Bessler and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer engineered today's show. WHYY's audio general manager is Joan Isabella. Head on over to whyy.org slash studio two or download us wherever you get your podcast and rate and review rate the review. pod from Studio Two at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg, friends. Have a great weekend and thanks for joining us.